Welcome to This Week in the Ancient Near East, a podcast that takes archaeology exactly as seriously as it deserves. I'm Alex Jaffe, director of the Bob and Ray Institute of Archaeology at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. With me, as always, are two academics from real institutions, Professor J.P. Dessel of the University of Tennessee and Professor Rachel Hallett of the State University of New York at Purchase. In addition to being archaeologist, he is a celebrity chef and she's a retired supermodel. Today we'll be talking about an especially provocative discovery from the site of Arad in southern Israel. Cannabis and frankincense residues on stone altars from a temple dated around 750 BCE, the very heart of the Iron Age. How is this discovery even made almost 60 years after excavations at the site? What was the role of pot in the religious rites of the kingdom of Judea? And why didn't this practice continue into later streams of Judaism? Why, oh why? Like I said, provocative indeed. Now, JP, your resume says that you were once religion correspondent for High Times Magazine. True or false? (laughs) I won't comment on that. (laughs) But suffice it to say, that uh, some of my uh, colleagues in the field of, uh, of religion in high times, chich uh, and chang, as it's pronounced in, uh, in, <clears throat> in our mother tongue, uh, were very appreciative uh, of these new finds at, uh, at Arad. Well, uh, one of the things that struck me immediately is that this, this site and these objects were excavated um, in the early 1960s, like 63 to 65, and then they sat in the basement of the Israel Museum until, you know, a couple of years ago when somebody came along and, you know, with the new science-based archaeology, waved their tricorder over it. No? No, I, I, <laughs> I, I think it's a little different than that. Is it? These were installed in the museum, in the Israel Museum. At, at the inception oh, of the that's right. and then somebody came along and like looked at it and right said, and then no and then when they redid the museum in whatever 2007 or 8 and they they took everything down right they, and they sort of looked at everything and they said oh, what's this big big glob of residue and and so that makes it even more interesting because this was this was hiding in plain sight this was right there for probably millions of people what went past this and, and clearly they didn't inhale, like, uh, like one of our former presidents. And, well, and had they just, uh, just looked a little bit more closely. So this is, I too thought that it had been sort of, you know, re-excavated in the bowels of, of some museum, uh, but this is not the case. But going forward, we can anticipate that um, this kind of analysis will be done on every single object in the basement of the, uh, of, uh, the Israel Antiquities Authority and all of the major museums probably throughout the world. Well, there are a lot of these altars or similar altars from different periods, that period before, after. And to me, the most provocative thing is um, maybe we've been misunderestimating the role of cannabis um, in daily life. 
I think that we, what we're really looking at is a kind of um, version of antiquity as a Cheech Chong movie. I think we need to, I think we need to back up and contextualize a little bit. Uh, so the, the, the nice thing about the fact that this material was excavated 60, 50, 60 years ago is that um, there's been 50, 60 years worth of scholarship on the site and on the shrine itself, um, besides the, the residue analysis, which is new. So I think we should point out that this is assumed to be a shrine to the god Yahweh that is located outside of Jerusalem. And it is um, the, the, the architectural nature of the shrine is this tripartite building uh, with an outer uh, a courtyard and an inner room and then a smaller inner room, Holy of Holies, um, just like the Bible describes the temple in Jerusalem. But the altars were found lying down. The altars well, were found lying really, down. And that's you important. Had that much if you had had that much <laughs> cannabis smeared on you, wouldn't you be lying down? Right. And that, and that brings me to the rest of um, the, the sort of historical discussion here, which is that the, the temple, the shrine, dates to um, probably its earliest use dates to the 10th century. And then it was going out of use in the 8th century. And it's going out of use is usually associated with the reforms of Hezekiah, um, who tried to centralize all religion within Jerusalem. So the reason- He was a, he was a reformed Judean. Oh, um, yes. And so the reason the altars are found lying down is thought to be because um, because he had disassembled um, cult outside of Jerusalem, at least cult for Yahweh outside of Jerusalem. Yeah, I think I, I think that there's a there are other explanations for all of this. That you know, it's very nice to have this idea that oh, you know, they're using this stuff in the cultic activities, and you know, the, the shrine is being put out of use. A, a more you know economical explanation is that um, after hours, some kids went into the shrine, blew a couple of big fat <laughs> bowls on the altar as a way of sticking it to the man and their parents who had made them attend services, then knocked the things over and ran out. And this is just what we found. Yeah, that's, that's certainly very plausible. Um... I mean, it, it's interesting that instead of patchouli, they used frankincense because, you know. I'm only familiar with frankenberries. <laughs> Most stoners prefer patchouli. <laughs> and that's what really surprised me, that if we have this, this stoner component to early or ancient Israelite religion, that they weren't burning patchouli, but that they were burning frankincense. But they were burning it mixed with animal dung to get the... To get the full flavor. Well, yeah, like a blunt. <laughs> well, there is a very, from what I, from what I hear, there, there's a very old tradition in the Middle East of mixing hashish with animal dung and, and rolling it into a, into a, uh, one, of, one of these marijuana cigarettes or whatever the kids call them today. <laughs> we really have to, you know, do our best Jack Webb imitation here. <laughs> So, so there's so many ways we can go in this, but you brought up Josiah. And I, I think maybe we're missing the, the point of, of Josiah's reforms, which- I'm talking about Hezekiah earlier. Oh, oh, I'm sorry, Hezekiah. Yeah. Maybe the point of his reforms were, were to just say no. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've missed the point of his reforms all, all, all together. Yeah. Quit getting stoned. 
Right. right. You're so out of it. You're a little exactly. too out of it. Just dial it down. Yeah, just say no. Um, one of the things that I was, there are many things that I'm interested in about all of this. Um, one of them is, is that marijuana or cannabis does not seem to creep into the consciousness of the biblical authors. They talk, they tell us a lot about frankincense. Right. But they, they fail to mention the fact that cannabis is being used. Obviously they knew. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a big gooey lump of this stuff on this, on this altar. And I always subscribe to the theory that if you find one of, of something, that there are other examples out there, that it's not the only example. Well, but maybe that's it. Maybe, maybe right. this was something that was so commonplace and so pervasive. And they were so, you know, oh. toasted that um, <laughs> it just didn't warrant uh, speaking about Ah, sort of like sort of like the same direction that some people take regarding the appearance of zodiac imagery on synagogue floors and the fact that it that a prohibition against that doesn't show up in the Talmud that the rabbis never comment oh my god they're putting they're you know they're putting they're putting images of god and and all this you know greco roman motifs helios what's helios doing there yeah on the floor of synagogues but you know the reason being it's so commonplace oh so yeah. it could be so commonplace, whereas frankincense was truly restricted. It was only restricted for, you know, top-down cultic activity. On the other hand, um, so we, we read in the author's study and elsewhere on the internet that the origins of cannabis are like China to India, and clearly it's coming into the Middle East, but it doesn't seem like it's so common because we would see more of it if it were really common. Why would we? Why would we? Why wouldn't we? Well, there, there, there are textual references here and there. There's a, there's a very famous reference in Herodotus about the Scythians, who apparently would make these, you know, teepees and go in there and get really, really high. Okay. And uh, out, there, out there on the step, because, you know, just way to pass the time when you're not storming around. Okay, so that's like three or 400 years later. Okay. Right, but maybe this is the kind of thing that it's that it's it, it's everywhere. I mean, they don't they don't talk. Authors don't talk about drinking and alcoholism or alcohol consumption all that much. Um, okay, but they, in, well, I mean, they do talk about the importance of wine and vineyards. There's certainly a lot of of you know. But not, not, the, not the impact of the, of the product itself on the human psych, psyche and behavior. Right, right. And, that's, that's, and besides, we, only, we have references only in elite kinds of texts to begin with. Right. So one question from the biblical point of view is all the various spices and things that are described here and there, and also not just within the Bible, but in later, you know, Second Temple period stuff and in the mission and all this, um, are there any terms that are unclear that the definitions of which are unclear? Well, obviously we need to, to get a real biblical scholar in here. Right. right. Where's my phone? And possibly a Mishnaic scholar too. What do we have on speed dial for yeah. Mishnaic lexicography? <laughs> if our budget was a little bit bigger, or even if we had a budget, had a budget. We, could, we could maybe call somebody. Right. <laughs> It's, uh, you know, when we're, when we're at the level of the Howard Stern show, maybe we could do that. So um, I'm sure that there are dual use terms that, uh, that, you know, people are 
misunderstanding or have a limited understanding of and that you know hash is only part of the term <laughs> so i want to i want to get into this deeper because i had a really um i thought revelatory thought at one point and then i read the study more closely and i realized i'm wrong but i'm going to say it anyway um and because so Okay, I'll start backwards. So the study says that there, you know, this is um, sacrifice of, of incense. They're burning incense as opposed to animal sacrifice. But when I first read about this find in the media, I immediately thought, oh, they need to fortify themselves mentally at a temple site to perform an animal sacrifice. And then um, in synagogue on Yom Kippur, I was reading the prayer book and uh, reading the description of the ecstasy state of the high priest um, at the moment of the animal sacrifice. And uh, he's got to be enhancing himself somehow. And there've also been ethnographic studies. And I once a long time ago at an SBL meeting saw a film of a modern sacrifice being performed and the drugs that were used and the, the, the sort of preparation and getting into this state before actually killing this animal with your own hands physically in order to appreciate the life of the animal, et cetera, et cetera. So this is exactly what I was thinking. So um, I'm not gonna give up this idea just because they didn't find any remains of, of animal sacrifice on these altars. I think maybe, maybe they were killing an animal in another room or right outside or in a courtyard. So we could call this sort of the, the Ozzy Osbourne um, theory of um, ecstatic religious experience in the ancient Near East. You know, bit off the head of a bird or something on stage. Um, well, I, I think your point about the high priest in Jerusalem is an interesting point because we're, we're told that, uh, you know, there's a lot of exclusivity to the, the rites and uh, of what the high priest does. And there's also, you know, uh, a lot of, you know, clouds of, 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 of smoke and things like this associated with, with his activities. And I have to believe, based on this Arad stuff, that we should start to think about, you know, the role that cannabis might be playing in, in the role of the very appropriately named high priest. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> on, this is... This is too easy. No, seriously. It just wrote right. itself. <laughs> exactly. No, seriously, the high priest, and I agree with you, Rachel. I absolutely agree with you that not only if, if the high priest himself was doing the sacrifice, um, but also just preparation for the, for the, the incredible privilege, sanctity, responsibility of holding these once a year, you know, ceremonies. Exactly. And, and that they and maybe we're maybe we're missing the the ecstatic um, nature of of the experience itself. I mean, it, it sort of described the the the, ment the mental state that he has to get into. But you know, when you look at the literature on on shamans of Central Asia and things like that, where they're going in, where it's described that they're going in and they're meeting spirits and the animals and you know, going to a different plane. But maybe this is. Maybe this is um, kind of the, the the subtext. He's going in there. He's having a, you know having the one face to face right with, uh, and, with, with God, and you know it's got to right. be in the right right state of mind. Right, and I also think that the, this experience of meeting God once a year was pro he probably described the experience to other people that it was right. not it was not a tightly held thing that part of 
the high priest's role was to in some way disseminate this experience to the inner circle. And the experience would probably have been somewhat less emphatic, you know, without some degree of, of uh, self-medication. Yeah. Right, right. And that definitely um, expanded the whole experience. I am concerned a little bit about the idea of fasting. Because <laughs> <laughs> you really need to remain hydrated during this kind of... No, because, because while the experience would be very much enhanced if you were to fast, from what I understand. <laughs> you know, you read books. <laughs> uh, I, I can't imagine making it through 26 hours having a right. little bit, you know, a couple of nibbles. Right. Um, which brings us to another question uh, that, that I thought important. So if they're burning frankincense mixed with animal fat, then clearly the domain of the synagogue is fleshing, not milking. Oh, yeah. Which means no schmear uh, <laughs> with your smoked fish. Uh, and, um, you but maybe know, this is one of the, the functions of exile, is that this whole ecstatic tradition, the frankincense, the myrrh, the, the, <laughs> the animal fat, the animal dung, it's all out. It's completely milchic or parv right. buffet thereafter. Right, right, right. Because the culinary public aspect of celebrating these, these um, experiences came to dominate, especially, obviously, in the house, but even publicly. Well, and, and once you moved out of the Mediterranean realm, and once you moved into the colder European realms, where you're keeping, it, you're keeping animals, but you're not eating them because they're expensive. And, you know, it's a non-sacrificial tradition. Right. And, right. Uh, and and you know you want a little nosh, and the, most of the time that nosh is going to be milking. Some Ritz crackers, <laughs> some herring. Yeah, a little bit of you know you want cheese. Cheese is easy to you know. Schnapps. Well, this is actually all very interesting because. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Yeah, because that's that's a really good point that it was a that it was a meat oriented. Um, if, if we're talking about an animal sacrifice, whether or not they found evidence near these particular altars, I'm still going to say that we are talking about an animal sacrifice. And everything we know about animal sacrifices is they're not wasting the meat, right? They're not just, they might be sending a little bit of the smoke up to the heavens, but they're not going to waste the animal. The priest is going to eat it. All the other priests are going to eat it. The staff, I guess they're all priests of the temple, is going to eat it. This is, um, this is people um, using the meat, and they don't get to do it all that often. And they're pretty excited about it. And maybe they're, maybe they're I don't know, I'm bothered by the fast as well. Um, maybe they're snacking immediately afterwards while, or the high priest is snacking immediately afterwards while the other priests are cutting up the animal post-sacrifice and cooking it and, and well, preparing I think it. There are other things to consider. One is that if you, if you take the, the, the descriptions of the, the temple in Jerusalem seriously, it's basically an industrial abattoir. Right. And, and uh, you know, if, not the if not the temple, the immediate environment. Right, the whole, right. Uh, as a, the temple as a kind of economic engine for, right. for the city, maybe right. less so in, in the earlier Iron Age, but certainly by, you know, the, the Herodian period or something. Oh, and yeah. You read about millions and millions of birds being, you know, pigeons and things being yeah. sacrificed. Yeah, during, yeah. Uh, 
Passover. Honey must have been so sticky with all of that honey. Right. It would have smelled <laughs> horrible. It would have there would have been a huge gigantic mess, right. which would would have provided both another psychological um, incentive to kind of be out of it, right? Um, but also just to cover up the the smell to a certain extent, right? And um, I don't know, though the notion of sacrificing an animal properly while stoned, that seems like a challenge. <laughs> a testable <laughs> hypothesis for experimental archaeologists. And, and this just came to me. I wonder what role cannabis might have played in the Akedah. I mean, you know, between, between Abraham and the biblical authors, who knows how much they got wrong if they were, if they were you know, partaking. That's, that's true, that's right. true. Um, although, I don't know, I would think that cannabis would have, not that I would know, milder effects than some other particular um, pharmaceuticals. And that's a good using. point. So in the article, they mention that cannabis will stimulate ecstasy. And that was obviously written, as far as I know, from what I hear, by an Israeli who's never experienced getting baked. Because that's not the, that's not the end result. I mean, it, it's, there's an, I don't think there's ecstasy involved in the use of, of cannabis. I, and, and I think it's much more subtle. And I think it's much more... Okay, but we don't know all of the surrounding um, rituals, the, the, the soundtrack, for one thing. Um, <clears throat> chanting, drums, you know, right. electric organs, uh, yeah. other kinds of things. <laughs> yeah, with Miriam dancing, who knows? Yeah. Right. Um, we don't know, obviously, the, the sort of background psychology, people who are uh, of the participants who are, you know, suffused in these kinds of things and therefore more susceptible to to being transported to another level uh, but i think it's really a question of how you define ecstasy um uh, in in the religious experience um right and and I, i'll say i'll say this whenever i'm trying to to get my students to understand what a big temple ceremony in either ancient israel or mesopotamia not, not Egypt, because I think Egypt was a much, much more business and scripted kind of affair. But I always, I always say, imagine, you know, a football game day, all the activities before the game. Oh, that's good. Or a Grateful Dead concert. Right. In which certainly marijuana does sort of produce Sometimes play a role. Group, yeah. group in, you know, um, the group a, a, a more of an ecstatic kind of experience. Um, but I think a bunch of sort of highly educated, <laughs> and, and here I'm, I'm probably being a little bit presentist, <laughs> a, a bunch of highly educated priests, if they did get stoned um, and were listening to a lot of music, wouldn't they just sort of get comfortable? Perhaps the origins of, of a pillow on, 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 on Julius Peter? <laughs> Wouldn't they just get comfortable and, you know, start talking Bible? Interesting. Well, but they have their jobs to do. <laughs> the jobs include 
but, but wait a second. Let, let's go back to, I mean, we're talking a lot about Jerusalem and the, and the main temple where, you know, but that's, that's the big leagues. That's the big leagues. Right, and that's, right. And that's once or twice a year, depending, you know, the, during the, the right. high holidays. And, and even if, you know, you take the, the numbers as they're, as they're recorded, and even if you knock off a couple of zeros, um, it's still a lot. And, you know, the, and it's a gigantic economic system because you need wine from Cyprus, you need amber from here and there, you need animals, you need this, all these ingredients, and they're, you know, very sharp penalties if you get something wrong. But we're talking, at least in the context of Arad, about, um, you know, Scranton Wilkesbury. <laughs> and, um, you know, where, where, where they don't have access to these things, you're talking about a little, a little institution. We don't really know what kinds of claims or f they had on their, on their community. Are they begging people to come to, to, to services? Are they demanding? We don't really know. And um, they don't seem to be, they don't seem to be sacrificing a lot of animals. Um, it's a kind of, you know, it's a local, it's a local thing. Maybe it was enough for Hezekiah um, to, to get all worried about this kind of local phenomenon. Oh, you know, you're challenging our, you're challenging your, your local practices because you're getting too stoned. You're not sacrificing animals, too many animals. It's challenging to the central authority. But really, maybe they're just trying to get themselves psyched up yeah. and get the, them and the congregation kind of really into it. Maybe it's the equivalent of, of I don't know, the, you know, trying to spruce things up with, with a guitar and sing-alongs. <laughs> like you know, like the Lomo family for contributing today's lump of cannabis. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, this was grown by... Uh, by, by, by David Benchlomo in, in, the, in the backyard. He's very proud of it. He's got some incredible female plants and we'd like to just thank, thank David and the whole Benchlomo family. Right, exactly. And, uh, it's, and, and they're lucky to have it. <laughs> they're lucky to have it, right, right. And we apologize that the kiddish is never enough. <laughs> <laughs> right, so everybody please take just one pickle. <laughs> Okay, at, at risk of having this podcast run way too long, because we're already at close to 25 minutes. I've, I've I wanna... got two more jokes. What? I've got two more jokes. Oh, okay, we'll keep going. Well, but one I... is, I think Haaretz really needs to be commended for the title of their article on this, Holy Smoke. I, I, think, I think they really, that, that's really good. And I think that the authors of the article in Tel Aviv um, uh, missed a really good opportunity instead of referring it to as an unidentified dark residue that they should have identified, they should have called it an unidentified dark matter. I think oh, that, oh, I think that they were good. looking at that and just didn't, didn't really see. They didn't see it. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it was probably, it was probably submitted quite some time ago. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but, but um, I wanted to, I, I, this would actually be a perfect ending point. So Alex, you can edit it to end it here, but um, there's one more thing I wanted to bring up, which was um, the fact that there are the two altars. And while the authors of the study 
essentially dismissed the idea that they were for two gods, for Yahweh and a consort. Um, the authors were saying that um, it was two altars for two different, for, for cannabis and for frankincense. Um, I actually like the idea, and I don't think it's, it's contradictory to think of it as two different deities who needed two different types of incense to worship them. So, um, you know, one needs, one needs the cannabis and one for whatever reason needs the frankincense and we yeah. can decide which is Yahweh. The bigger altar I assume would be Yahweh and the smaller one would be Asherah, but. Right. Well, but we, we also didn't talk about where are they getting all this dope? Well, so the authors talk about the fact that they didn't find any stems or seeds, uh, which suggests that they weren't getting it from Mexico. Right. <laughs> They did find a frisbee <laughs> and, a, was, and a hacky sack, right. <laughs> but but uh, and that it was coming in as as sort of a condensed matter, you know, dark, dark matter, yeah, a sheesh form, um, and that speaks to this issue of how um, how prevalent it was in the society. And they sort of say it was an exclusive product that was imported, and it was imported in this you know very specific. Uh, uh, fashion in, in, as a hashish instead of being sort of locally grown. And, and that might, I mean, that is a little bit um, supportive of the idea that it is not all that prevalent and they're not really growing it. And one wouldn't expect to spend a lot of water growing this stuff mm. out in a place like a rod, but that's sort of open. Right. So, the maybe it's ask, just being grown at Kibbutz Gezer. Like, well, like it used to be, and <laughs> right, the kibbutz movement as one of the as one of the great levelers of the cannabis <laughs> in the ancient Near East. But um, but what I want to bring up is the big four horned altar at Beer Sheva. Mm. You know, if it, it was just a a couple of grams on the one at uh, Arad, the one at Beer Sheva. I mean, that might have been the origins of Rastafarianism. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, those guys might have been stoned for weeks based on what they, what they slathered on top of that altar. That's a very interesting point. I like that point. And how about the multiple altars found at Megiddo? You know, yeah. They're doing it all over right. the place there. Oh, sure. and, but, but what about the, the little stone altars found in all these houses? Yeah. yeah. Well, well, oh, that changes the picture. Yeah, in a, in a big way. And, and people always assume, oh, you know, they're doing some kind of household cult. Right. And, but maybe, maybe this is the crux of the biscuit for the household cult. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think you might be getting ahead of yourself because they haven't found any remains. And I think we need to, to you know, in household cultic altar areas, uh, I think we need to just extrapolate to major temples. Sorry. Why? Because you don't want to get ahead of yourself here. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bad thing. <laughs> Crying out loud. <laughs> but this is a perfect opportunity for, for some kind of incredible science-based research design. Dig an Iron Age house or complex, hope to fun and, and look for, um, you know, all the funky plant remains. Hope to hell that you find some, some altars. Use your tricorders on them to, um, you know, reconstruct the, the, the olfactory um, psychedelic background of, uh, of the Iron Age. Okay. Yeah, and I think, I think that is a good, I, 
good idea. I mean, I think if people find residue, they will analyze I, that. I need $6.9 million for <laughs> right. this project. There's another side point, and that is they, the, artic the article and just in general makes the assumption that frankincense was used for its um, aromatic uh, uh, content. But um, cannabis also has a very, um, you know, subtle and uh, for some people, uh, you know, aromatic uh, sense to it. I've heard. I've heard. So I don't think that can be dismissed, especially on the household level. That's um, a good point. That it, you know, that it smelled good and that that smell uh, was going to uh, lead to um, some good feelings. Right, of, because of basically antiquity stank. Right, antiquity right. stank, exactly. And anything you could do to dispel that in a practical sense for, from an olfactory sense and a psychological sense was probably a pretty good thing. Right. right. And you do your household sacrifices sort of close to bedtime so you get all relaxed. Yeah, uh, <laughs> or before mealtime. I mean, I think that's up to the individual. Okay. <laughs> you put on, you know, little Inagata Davida. Yeah. Whether it's, whether it's Mincha or Marev, I think it works. Right. Um, but go, going back to frankincense, frankincense is coming a long way. Frankincense yes. is coming from certain, you know, at least Yemen, or the Yemen, as we call it in <laughs> British Empire, or even Oman or someplace like that. And it's yeah. a very unusual material uh, right. that is very rare. Right. So what is that doing in Scranton Wilkesbury? Well, it speaks, it's, it's not, I, go, I guess it's not dissimilar to the, to the kind of LB2 phenomenon of imported Cypriot pottery being found everywhere. Mm. Um, you know, mark of the middle class, an expanding middle class, and the fact that, yes, this stuff was expensive and hard to get, but it was available. And that if you, uh, if you were able to bank a few shekels, you could always pick up a little frankincense uh, um, somewhere. It also speaks to the economy and down-the-line trade and uh, how far-reaching trade was, luxury trade at least. Right, right. Frankincense. Get your frankincense. <laughs> I got two. I got two. <laughs> Is that the good stuff? <laughs> None of this Yemeni frankincense. I want yeah, exactly. Filled with seeds and stems. That stuff. That's right. <laughs> Do you have you ever smelled frankincense? Uh, I think I have. Yeah. Do, or maybe maybe it was Erzat's frankincense. But <laughs> I, I think in the old city, don't they? Oh, oh, uh, maybe. Don't they? Uh, don't they offer That's another. That? We. Yeah. Research. Well, well, we don't have time for that. The whole pilgrimage aspect, too. That's right. Yeah, that's oh, true, yeah. actually. And we could do that now. We could get a flight from Tel Aviv to... Khartoum. Yeah. No, let's go to Dubai. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, go on the frankincense... Um, the frankincense... Heritage tour. Yeah, exactly. That would be a lot of fun. Right. Well, we would start in Western China, from what I've read. Yeah. As being the, as being the ancestral home of cannabis, high in the mountains of the Pamirs. I don't think I could climb a mountain if I. I mean, from what I've heard about the effect that it has on people. Well, and that and that brings up a level of the exclusivity. 
hmm. that, you know, only certain people in the society could sort of handle, you know, both their flower and the responsibilities of, mm -hmm. you know, of slaughter and standing on your feet, chanting and all of this other stuff. So it's sort of, if you remember our conversation many, many years ago about the said festival in Egypt <laughs> and, and about how the said festival was really just a sort of a, a demonstration of the king's physical uh, abilities and also mental acuity. And that if they weren't able to do all of these heroic tasks of the said festival, throwing things and leaping and bounding and all that kinds of things, then they couldn't be king. Or <clears throat> um, maybe this was sort of the same kind of thing. They had to find, you know, high priestly material or priestly material in the case of Arad, uh, of someone who could, you know, basically be a high functioning stoner. That's really interesting. And I think that there's a lot of validity to that because what we do know from these Mishnaic texts turned into prayer services is that the, the high priest um, was not always very educated. He was, you know, you're born into the position of priest. And if you're not very educated, you need other people to do the stuff that you can't do. And that's a major piece of this. If you can't, if you can't teach whatever you're supposed to be teaching in preparation, then somebody else has to do it for you. So I think uh, the, the people who were the priests who were able to be chosen as high priest in Jerusalem or as whatever in Arad were um, not necessarily able to do it all. So maybe this is one thing they selected for. They were just sort of robust little Abner types <laughs> who, could, who could hold their, uh, hold their weed and, uh, yeah. and, and you know, wield a, a thing to slaughter your chicken or whatever. Well, it was, yeah, or it's sort of like the guy in high maintenance, able to, able to bike around Manhattan uh, with great deal of precision while being stoned all the time. It's just, there's a skill set. It's, it's very specific. Yeah. It's very specific. Well, and, it's, and it selects for a certain kind of, you know, one of the multiple intelligences that's, that's out there. You know, functionality. Right. Right. And, but, it, but it also, you know, it, and it deserves to be said again, it's a tradition that just drops out after. Yeah. And, right. Um, uh, we don't we don't have any other evidence after uh, you know after the Babylonian exile or in the right. Babylonian exile, right? Um, and certainly not in the appearance of rabbinic Judaism and and beyond. Well, right. slow down, slow down. This we didn't know about this piece of evidence till right now, and it's been sitting around well, for sixty years. You're the one Who who's talking about the negative evidence. Oh, you know, you can't. Uh, no, I'm just saying that maybe they're going to find some residue on the Beersheba altar, or, or you know, some other altar. Right, but but I think in in later tradition it does seem to die out. Right, there's no extended tradition of getting baked, you know, before before a service. Well, could you, could you actually be a rabbi and, and be baked? Could you? Those, those descriptions of the high priest I've been talking about are second temple, Roman period descriptions. Now, if, if, um, we, if we try and keep up with the daf yomi, and all of the discussions, uh, I think we're in Eruvim now, and all the discussions about, you know, you, you need an Eruv on the inside, but not the outside. And what, what we do in the modern era is, is try and metaphorize and extrapolate and, and triangulate. Maybe these guys are just having all these conversations and they're really, really baked. Well, 
And they just, all these kinds of, all this kind of minutia that stoners talk about. Right. Um, you know, sitting down in, in their friends' parents' basements. And, right. Um, maybe yeah. there's a whole backstory that, that has been kind of... Sanitized. Sanitized, hidden. Hidden history. <laughs> and, and of all groups, you would certainly think that the Haridim, with all of those kids screaming all the time, would want to take the edge off and have that <laughs> sanctioned by God. Well, and, and here we may come to the origins of the Hasidic movement, the hidden <laughs> Hasidic movement, and its ecstatic kinds of uh, interests and orientation. A lot of singing, a lot of dancing, a lot of, uh, you know, drinking right. schnapps in order to take the edge off, in order to get into the spirit. Right. That's right. not actually legalistic as such. I mean, it's legalistic on the, on the page. No, but it's definitely an it, extrapolation. It's when, when you're hashing, hashing it out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay. Right. Sure. And of course, they didn't have, you know, they didn't have any opportunities to get cannabis in, in 18th century Galicia. Um, right. But they did have wine and whiskey. Right, exactly. And they certainly imbibed. And right, and you know, it speaks to this whole issue of, of the Hasids never seem to be upset about not having a hecture on, on, alcohol, on uh, spirits. Whereas wine is this separate category, spirits are completely open. No hecture, never needed a hecture. You know, all sorts of a very, there's a lot of bending of rules regarding the lack, I think, the lack of a hecture on grain alcohol. Right? That's very interesting, yeah. Right? yeah. And, and, you know, that never slowed them down in terms of adopting, you know, really the sanctity of, of having shivas or whatever the, you know, whatever the whiskey is, uh, the, the fav favored whiskey is today. Right. Um, at a Fabringen. Um, you know, that, it, it really became part of their cultic architecture to have whiskey. That's um, very interesting. And that goes back to something we were saying earlier, um, which is that, you know, when you're not writing about it, there's, there's no writing in any Jewish text, any Hasidic text about, about use of alcohol in any ceremonial, right. maybe accepting simplest Torah, but even there, that's just tradition, not written down. And uh, this is the same thing. So we right. wouldn't expect it to be mentioned in any earlier text. And it seems to be a, uh, now, now we're seeing a direct line from antiquity straight through at least the 18th century or today. Yeah. Right. Well, that and that and that brings us up to today with with Israel um, liberalizing its uh, marijuana laws. Right. And so, what happens when, if um, this generation or a portion of this generation of of Haredim and uh, other Orthodox Jews start? Um, getting high and seeing the tradition, including the texts, through this um, new lens. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that I want to be the one to, you know, <laughs> take a, a pound of hash, you know, a block of hash the size of a baby's head into a yeshiva and say, you know, here guys, try this and then do... I mean, it would be a fascinating experiment. Well, I think if you baked it into a babka, you'd be, 
you'd be halfway there. Yeah, I don't think that the, the cons, you know, the human experimentation consent board <laughs> at, at the university would agree to that or to finance it. But um, yeah, I could, I could see that. Okay, well, that's, that's a window into the future. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> we need those. There you go. And I will point out, we've been talking for 47 minutes. Because well, I'm a spoil sport. We're, we're just a bunch of, you know, we're just a bunch of gadflies. We love this kind of stuff. <laughs> there you go. There it's, you go. It's a regular Algonquin roundtable that we've got going here. <laughs> All right. Good. All right. All right. Well, now that we've solved this problem, I'll... Uh, you know, but it does lead to, oh, uh, here's another issue. We're done. We're, no, uh, we're not done. <laughs> we're, we're not done. Because the, when the high priest, I mean, theoretically, and this is probably, you know, heretical in some fashion. When the high priest gets baked on Yom Kippur and goes in to the um, Holy of Holies and he sees the face of God. Mm-hmm. Do we have any of those faces or depictions, renditions of those, of those faces out there? It's a provocative question. That it might is. be a question to take up another time. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Maybe he, maybe he brings in a little piece of pottery and draws what he sees. That's right. A little piece of clay. <laughs> up. And maybe that piece of pottery with that, with that little... Drawing has been found. Entirely possible. Entirely possible. I don't think we can discount it as a null hypothesis. No. No. Well, <laughs> maybe that's something to talk about one of these days. Yeah. yeah we'll, we'll think about that one. Yeah. I don't know. I'm kind of hungry now, though. Yeah, I'm very hungry. <laughs> wow. That was really something, wasn't it? We'd like to thank Erez Dessel for composing our theme music. And, of course, our sponsor. Yo-Yo Dan.